The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. This month on the Thin Places podcast, we're taking a long, hard look at what may be the most talked about and least read book in the whole Bible. We're talking about Revelation, about what it says and about what it doesn't say. There's a question that haunts us each time we look at this book. And that question is, what is being revealed? What is John trying to unveil for his churches and for us to see? Is it the reality of spiritual warfare? Or is it something more, something that breathes hope into the strife and exhaustion of my life? In our final episode of The Apocalypse Revisited, we're going to look at the parallels between our worship and the images and stories in John's Revelation. To help follow along with the discussion, you'll find a link to our study notes in the description of this episode. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, let me recommend that you check those out before jumping into this one. In our earlier discussions, we addressed how Anglicans read the Bible, what an apocalypse is and how genre works in Scripture, We asked some hard questions about the rapture and embraced a bird's-eye view of the whole book of Revelation. So, check those out first, and then jump with me into a small group at St. Aidan's a few years ago, as we learn to see the apocalypse as worship. Okay, so tonight I'm going to be referencing this book a lot, alright? It's called The Lamb's Supper, alright? The Lamb's Supper, written by Scott Hahn. Now, Scott Hahn is a professor uh, of New Testament, I believe, at um, Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, this book is is written for, like, lay people. Like, this book is written to be really accessible and really easy to read. Uh, and so what we're going to talk about tonight, right? So last week we talked about how we can read Revelation well. Like, what does it look like for us to actually sit down with Revelation and just to read it well? So I've left up half of the stuff on the board That's that we had last you. week. Um, there's sort of the, the framework for our discussion. So if you, if you look at the board behind me, uh, on the left-hand side of the board, underneath the heading, The Revelation of John by Smalley, this is what we covered last week. All right, We talked about how do we understand the framework of what it is that John is trying to accomplish, the story that John's trying to tell. And so, and so Father Smalley divided it up into seven sevens, all right? And each, after each seven, he has what's called, what he calls an interlude, which is sort of like a musical break. So he understands it to be like a big theatrical performance. There's two acts, and they're broken up into seven different different scenes. So so scene one, act one, is the seven oracles. Scene two, act one, uh, is is the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, right? So so act two begins, right? And scene four is the seven signs. 
Uh, and this is when, you know, God goes to war and there's a new exodus. There's seven bowls, there's seven visions, and then it's all rounded out with seven prophecies uh, that, are, that, that are given. So this is a framework to help us to understand. Now, this is not the only way. We looked at an, entire, an, an entirely other way of framing this uh, for tonight. But what, th this is helpful for sort of getting a basic overview of the major points in the story, right? So this, this may or may not be the best way to understand the book, right? But this is really helpful for, for sort of seeing the book in a, in a larger picture, right? Because we're dealing with 22 chapters. Like, Revelation is not a small book. Revelation is, in fact, one of the largest books in the New Testament. This is, this is a bulky part of the New Testament. And so just like we would need to do if we were reading, you know, 1 Corinthians, we would want to sit down and we would try want, want to have some kind of a diagram that helps us to understand the thought processes that Paul has as he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. In the same way, we, we, we want a basic schematic, right? We want a basic diagram to help us to understand what it is that St. John is trying to, to do as he's telling us this story. So we covered a ton of material last week. We went through it really fast, and it still took almost an hour to get through all of the material. So... So my question for us then at the beginning is, do you guys have any questions or reflections on the material that we covered last about? week? That. Like, you oh, you talked about the whole, the seven, 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 seven. Yeah, that was all and, last week. And another one. And, uh, and, and this other half where we're going to fill stuff in tonight. I have a picture of the board wall. And there's a recording. There's yeah, a recording. I have a recording. We turned this into two, but it didn't pull up on JJ's email. So any questions or reflections after our study last week? Did you guys find last week helpful? Was it like was it useful? Did you do you feel now like you can do you feel comfortable sitting down and just reading Revelation? Do you feel less apprehensive about just sitting down and reading? I feel comfortable when you told me how to read it. How to read it? Like read it as a story? I'd say less apprehensive. Uh-huh. It's it's still really overwhelming. Yeah. And it was just a ridiculous amount of information. It really is. It's so hard to digest all, just all of that. I think the most useful part was when we got to the, okay, now at this point in the narrative, we stop, and then we're going to go backward and say, here's another way to look at this. Mm -hmm. Because if you try to read it with some sort of linearity in your head, you get totally right. confused. Like, wait a minute, isn't aren't all these bad people gone? Yes, but let's talk more about this. Right, exactly. And that's the thing that, that this at least is it the the diagram that Smalley uses that, that we have up here is less helpful for that. Okay? So the the other diagram that we had up here uh, is written by uh, Trafton. Uh, who's who's a professor at Western Kentucky University, um, and what he does is he breaks this up into four visions uh, because there are four separate times that John says, "And then I had a vision," or "Or and I was in the spirit and I saw," and and using that you can actually see why there's so much repetition here. That that actually like when we're talking about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, nothing actually happens in the story until you get to the bowls. Like every single one of these is the same thing. It's just that this is the first step. This is, this is when it's unveiled, and this is when it's proclaimed, and this is when it's poured out, 
right? So there are three different visions of the exact same event. Now, here's what here's what we're gonna do tonight. Yes. Is it stuffy? There's lots of people in here. <laughs> yes. There's lots of 98.6s in here. Everybody saw it's supposed to snow Friday? I heard that. Snow is so bad. Yeah. I slap someone in the face. I wasted a time last night. Didn't I say that last Halloween too? It did nothing. I don't know. I mean, you know, but yeah. I'm going to go outside and spray All of that to say, it's it's going to be... Global warming, Dan! Okay, so... Tonight, what I want to talk about is it is taking the book of Revelation and sort of unpacking its imagery in a way that the church historically has unpacked Revelation. So we talked about, as, as scholars, as good biblical readers, ways that we can read the book. What I want to talk about tonight over, over here, I left this up here because we're going to be jumping in here and putting notes over here, and so I wanted us to see sort of the whole book outlined for us. But this is where we're, we're, we're spending time tonight on this half of the page, okay? I want to talk about what is going on and why in the world is that useful, okay? Like, so what? Who cares? So here's what I absolutely need from everybody. I need everybody to have a Bible. And just go ahead and open it up to chapter one because we're going to... We're gonna move Start really. We're, we're gonna move really quickly through the entire book, uh, and you guys, are, you, we're gonna have to have quick thumbs. We have enough. We have enough. I've got an extra one here. We have another one right here too. All set. Okay. Okay. So here's my question for us. All right. I want. I want. Like I said, I want to talk tonight about a, a way that we can read Revelation in a practical sense. So I want to start with with this question. Think 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 of the entire story that that, that we've read over the last. I mean, we've been kind of poking around this for like six weeks now, but five weeks now, right? But but think about the the. There we go. Think about the whole entirety of the book. What, or I'm sorry, who, or what, I suppose, who stands at the center of John's revelation? What's the central character? What's the character that shows up over and over and over again? What is Jesus, God. The, Lamb. Jesus. the Lamb? Right. Don't Right? The Lamb. The lamb stands at the center, like at absolutely at the very center of the story. Now, here's the question for us, okay? Why is a lamb at the center of a story about the end of the world? Right? That's, that's how we understand John's revelation. It's a story about the end of the world, sort of. It's, it's, it's tangentially a story about the end of the world. Um, unless, unless you want to, uh, unless we want to be sort of very figurative about what we mean, the end of the world. And, but that, you know, that's getting that. That's one of those things that preachers do when they're giving a sermon. Like, let me talk about the end of the world. As we it's, know it, thank you. And then we sing that song. Thank you. Ari. The rest of the okay. So the lamb stands at the center. Why is the lamb at the center? Right. The lamb shows up the first time in chapter four. The very first time John has a vision. The angels proclaim the Lion of Judah, and he turns around. 
and there's a lamb standing next to the throne. Why is it a lamb? He turns around to the throne, looking for a lion. He finds a lamb there. Because the lamb has conquered. Hmm? The lamb has conquered. The lamb has conquered, but why a lamb? Because that is what the, no. the Bible has called Jesus, the Lamb of God. Well, John calls him that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So is that why? No. Yes, but I want to go back farther. Why does Why does John call Jesus a Lamb? Because he's the sacrifice. Because Isaiah calls Isaiah speaks of the, the sacrificial Lamb, the Passover talks right. of the Lamb, and the Passover talks of the Lamb. Right. So you have Isaiah talking about the sacrificial Lamb. And he's drawing on an even older tradition. That goes back to Abraham and Isaac. It goes back to Abraham and Isaac, right? What is it that the lamb represents? A sacrifice. A sacrifice. God for sin. For sin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a sin sacrifice. You don't sacrifice lambs for uh, for Thanksgiving offerings. You don't sacrifice lambs for purification offerings. You don't sacrifice lambs for any of those. Lambs are sacrificed as sin offerings. Now, here's here's what we're going to do very just very, very briefly, okay? So the first time that this shows up, and we're not going to jump all the way back here, but the first time that this shows up, right, we talked about lambs, lambs are the sacrifice, and then this happens in Exodus 12, right? We're all familiar with this story, okay? Exodus 12 is the 10th plague, right? God is going to deliver his people from Pharaoh, and he delivers them by, depending on which passage you read in Exodus, either showing up or sending an angel ahead of him, uh, to kill not just the firstborn males, male Egyptians, but all of the firstborn males in Egypt. Except, unless what? They painted their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. With the blood of one of the firstborn lambs. So what has to happen? The firstborn has to give his life to protect the people in the household. Right? The people within the household are, here's our fancy theological term, redeemed. Redeemed. It's a word that means purchased. It means bought back, right? This is the word that you would use if you went to take something out of hawk from the pawn shop. You go and redeem that. If you have a, a lottery token, you go and you redeem the, 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 the scratchers, you know, at the, at the, 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 the local shop and stab. You know, like, that's what this word means. It means to purchase something back. And what it is that the lamb accomplishes here is that he purchases them back. This is exactly what it is that, that Isaiah is speaking to when he says that the lamb of God is, it, it, when he points toward Christ as the lamb of God. This is what John proclaims. John, we're talking about John. John the baptizer in John's gospel proclaims, behold the lamb of God who takes away, who takes away the sins of the world. But something even more epic than that is about to happen, okay? I'm just gonna read this to you because I don't want us all to have to flip there really quickly. But this is, this is John's gospel. John's the only one that points this out, okay? Which is why we're going there, okay? John's gospel in the 19th chapter in the 14th verse. Listen to what John says, all right? Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried, Away with him, crucify him. Okay? Listen to what he says again, and, I'll, and, and then I'll explain what just happened here. Because this is John, all right? 
John is the one who proclaims at the beginning of his story, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was now the day of preparation for the Passover. It was the sixth hour. Why? John's the only one that tells us that it was the sixth hour when the Jews, when, when Pilate brings Jesus, having been, having been flogged and mocked and wrapped in a cloak, brings him out and says, behold your king, right? H.A. Homo is the, 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 the famous painting of that scene, right? Of Pilate standing there and there's, you know, Jesus torn, torn to pieces. Behold the man. Behold your king. And they say, crucify him. The sixth hour of the day of preparation is the moment that the priests go into the temple to begin killing the lambs. Right? That's why John says it. Because John wants us to understand that this is the day of preparation. Right? That Christ is our lamb. Okay? And so, John continues telling the story. Many, many, many years later, probably four, maybe five decades later, John is sitting in church on a Sunday... And he has a vision. And in this vision, he hears an angel say to him, look behind you, the lion of Judah. And he turns, and what he sees is the lamb. The lamb that takes away the sins of the world. The lamb is the one that stands at the center of the story. Because Christ has become the ransom, the redemption of the church. All right? Are we all following where, where we're going here, all right? Let me explain to you why it is that John imagines this to be important, okay? I already said the lamb is at the center of the story. Let me explain to you what I mean by the lamb is at the center of the story. Because the lamb as a character, not, just, not as a reference, but as a character, shows up in chapter 1, chapters 4 and 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20, and three different times in chapter 22, all right? The lamb is the center of the story, right? This is who the story is about. If you want to understand Revelation, you have to understand this, okay? You have to understand this image, that this is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Where have you heard that phrase before? Yes. We sing it. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Where have we heard it before? Often. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not accidental that from the very beginning, from the first Christian liturgy that we have, that is exactly the image that's proclaimed. That's what Christians always everywhere have said when they bring the elements from the table to God's people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's on your plate too. It's on the plate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's called an, an Agnus Dei, is a, the Latin phrase for the Lamb of God. Right? The Lamb is at the very center of everything that happens in the book. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> That's who's the center of the story. If we understand that, we can begin to unpack the things that John is talking about. All right? What's the story about? 
That's a good question. I agree. I don't know. So. <laughs> well, it's not about America because America doesn't. Right. I think it's there. I think you missed it. <laughs> What's the story about? Look up seventeen fourteen. What's the story about? We'll go back to chapter one in just a minute. There's something important there for us to look at tonight. But what what happens in seventeen fourteen? They will make war on the land. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's what Revelation's about. You want to understand Revelation? It's right there. It's the Lamb at war. That's it. I didn't. We can, I mean, we can go into all of the little, you know, nitty, nitty gritty details over there. That's what the story's about. It's the lamb at war. But it's about something else, too. All right? So look again, right? At the very beginning over here, we said that this is a key to understanding this book. We have to understand that when John talks about the world that he sees, he understands it in terms of conflict. Okay? Like, that's, that's central. Constantly, over and over and over again. He reveals the seals, right? God's judgment is revealed, and what happens? Creation rebels. And God's judgment is, is, is proclaimed when the trumpets sound, and creation rebels. And then, what happens? There's, there's a rebellion, and we watch the rebellion happen, and then God pours his judgment out, and creation rebels. Over and over and over again, we see this is conflict, conflict. Just constant, constant turmoil between the saints and those who follow the beasts, okay? But there's something else that happens just as often as conflict in John's story, all right? So here's what I want us to do. Turn to chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. Somebody read chapter 1, verse 7 to us. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And on, the, on his account... All the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. amen. Who says amen? I have to look at a couple of verses earlier. Who says amen there? Verses in green. Hmm? Green is nature stuff. Creation stuff. So it's John that says it. Hmm? Is John that says it? No. It's the angel of the Lord. Right. The angel of the Lord, who may or may not be Christ. We're, we're going to say that it's Christ. This is, this is Christ proclaiming. This is what the end is going to look like. But at the end of that proclamation, he says what? The very end of, of, of verse uh, 7. What does he say? Yes. He says yes. He says amen. Amen is a form of? It's true. It is true. It's a public <laughs> affirmation. It's a, a public declaration. All right, somebody turn to uh, chapter 7. Look at verse 9 through 12. After this, I had a vision of a great multitude, which no one could count. From every nation, race, people, and tongue, they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Said to what? Through 12. Through 12, okay. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation comes from our God who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb. 
and all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They, prof they prostrated themselves before the throne, worshipped God, and exclaimed, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and, and thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What's happening there? All of the people of God are gathered around doing what? Worshiping. Worshiping. Let me turn to chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, there. What's happening again? Worship. Worship. Let me turn to 10, verse 6 and 7. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants the promise. And again? Worship. It certainly, it certainly seems like it's happening a lot. Because we're going to find the same thing if we turn to chapter 15, and if we turn to chapter 16, and if we turn to chapter 18. Uh, we're going to find the same thing if we turn to chapter 19. And again, if we turn to chapter 20. And a whole bunch of times if we turn to chapter 22. What is it that is happening over and over and over and over and over and over again in this book? The people of God gathering around the throne to worship. Right? This book is absolutely about conflict. <laughs> and the book is about worship. So how do we sort of mesh those two together? Like, how do we do that? Just us, just in general. How do we blend those two things together? In this book, he goes into even more detail about worship, right? So he says, as I described in chapter one, it was only when I began attending mass that the many parts of this puzzling book began to fall into place. Before long, I could see the sense in Revelation's altar in chapter eight, in its robed clergy in chapter four, in its candles in chapter one, in its incense in chapter five, in the manna in chapter two, in the chalices in chapter 16, in worship on Sunday in chapter one, in the, in, in the prominence given to the story of the Virgin Mary in chapter 12, in the acclamation of all of God's people, holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts in chapter 4, and the Gloria in Excelsis in chapter 15, and the sign of the cross in chapter 14, and the Alleluia proclaimed by God's people in chapter 19, the reading from Scripture in chapters 2 and 3, and the Lamb of God over and over and over again. These are not interruptions in the narrative. They're not incidental details. These are the very stuff of John's apocalypse. This is what John is describing to us. He's describing 
church. And yet, he describes it as both of these at the same time. So how do we deal with that? Well, there are parts, there are parts of our liturgy that are, are inherently built around conflict. Mm-hmm. There's the confession, mm-hmm. there are the prayers of the people, and there's our finishing affirmation, the world goes not well. Right. All of these things, and all of these things, they don't interrupt our worship. Mm-hmm. They're not concessions, but they're acknowledgments of the reality that there is conflict within mm-hmm. us and within the world. And even more than that, they are the tools of the conflict in the kingdom. Warfare in the kingdom, the war of the lamb, is worship. That's how the lamb and and the people who follow the lamb wage war, is by worship. That's how they that's how they wage war. When we gather together to pray, that's us gathering together to do battle against the forces that imprison and enslave this world. Right? That's what the that's what the beasts are all about. That's why there's two beasts that show up: the land and the sea. The way that they're described, these are these are the the corrupt political powers of the world, and these are the corrupt religious powers of the world. Right? And there are people who follow the corrupt religion and the corrupt politics of this world that we live in, and over and against that the people of God gather and they say we believe in one God the Father the Almighty right the people who worship the lamb follow after the lamb listen to this this is I I just thought this was wonderful because this is this reality is something that the church has understood from the very beginning and it's not until you you have people revising the church's worship revising the church's literature liturgy kind of stuck there revising the liturgy of the church after the enlightenment right we've talked lots and lots of times before about this idea of a two-tiered or a three-tiered universe do you guys remember having that discussion in the past you guys remember it sort of kind of not really that that in in every culture except for a handful of western cultures and not all western cultures let me let me say that right but primarily in, in Western European cultures. You have this idea that, there's, that, that if, if somebody believes in a spiritual world, there's the material world, and then there's God and the spiritual world. Whereas for the, the history of humanity and for all other cultures in the world, they understand that there's a third tier, right? We refer to it as the excluded middle, right? That, and, and in that you have angels and you have demons and you have fate and you have witchcraft and you have magic and you have all of these things that... Let's be honest, we don't believe in. What? Right? Like, be honest about it, right? Like, you're like, okay, that's true. I don't, I, I don't believe that, you know, Lee can draw, you know, something on the ground and then I'm going to have a bad day. Um, have you read your yet? I've not. I've, I've not. But Christians, by and large, have, have always, everywhere, understood that that's a real world, right? And that that real world is why worship is the way that we wage war. We wage war not by joining with people who, who, are, who are currying favor with demons and not by joining the forces of the, the political forces of this world, but instead we worship and we proclaim our faith in the lamb who was slain. So listen to this. This is from uh, probably the beginning of the fourth century. This is called the, um, this is the, the liturgy of St. Mark. Uh, this is still uh, the liturgy that's performed in uh, Egyptian churches and in, in Coptic churches. Okay, this is 
during during the Eucharist, right? They they've presented the elements, uh, and in in the in the Orthodox churches, uh, all of the elements are sort are behind this big. Uh, uh, this big wall, okay? It's called the iconostasis. If you guys come to the thing this weekend at St. Athanasius, you'll get a chance to see it. Uh, they're going to have the doors open. But all of the stuff is prepared there, and then the the, the, the altar servers fling the doors open, and uh, and, and everybody's singing this, this big hymn, and the, the deacons bring all of the gifts out uh, to the people, and, and they're, they're all singing and, and praising together, fling, fling wide the doors, right? In the in, in the Alexandrian liturgy, this is the song that they sing as right. This is the part in our liturgy where I say, "Behold the Lamb of God." Okay, in their liturgy, they don't use this. This is what they say: "Crush under our feet Satan and all his wicked influence. Humble now, as in as at all times, the enemies of your church lay bare their pride. Speedily show them their weakness. Bring to naught the wicked plots they contrive against us." The doors are flung open. The gifts are brought out from the altar as the people cry, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let all who hate your holy name be put to flight. Right? That's what the church has understood her worship to look like from the very beginning. Right? They understood that what Revelation is talking about is the world that we live in right now. That the world we live in is one where day in and day out we face spiritual darkness and we face political darkness and we face inner darkness. And in the midst of that, God calls us again and again and again, showing us again and again and again the judgment that he has prepared for that kind of wickedness and calling us again and again to join with him in worship around the throne, to become the people of the Lamb. The church understood this from the beginning. It's just something that we've forgotten and don't like to talk about anymore. That's the cosmic conflict that John is describing for us in, in his revelation. He describes this conflict, and at the same time, he describes it in terms of Christian worship. And within that, there's a promise. Right? He doesn't just leave us in the midst of conflict. He doesn't say, come to church, because that's the only way you can fight demons. You either join them or you come here. That's it. That's all you got. See you Sunday. Like, that's not the end of the book, okay? He leaves us with a promise. What's the promise? We read it tonight. Turn to chapter 21. This was our intro tonight. This is why this was our intro tonight. That everything we know is going to pass away in a new version of everything is going to be revealed. Right. Exactly. What does chapter 21 verse 9 say? Hmm? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Right. This is a book that's intended to reveal to us who Christ's bride is. Right. And this is what's amazing about that. Okay. The book is called the Apocalypse, which means what? Right. Oh my gosh! This is <laughs> this right here is the wedding practice at the time that John is writing the book. This is the point in the service where the bride's veil is lifted. Oh my gosh! This is what the book is. It's John pulling back the veil. The bride is being revealed. Right? That's our hope. That's the promise that he gives us. This is the unveiling. That's what the apocalypsis is. The entire, the, the, the entire service 
just leads us up to this point, to the apocalypse, to the unveiling of the bride. This is wedding language that he's using. That's why the entire last third of the book is all about the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? There's the brideless feast. And what happens? He goes to get the bride, right? He finds that the bride is gone. The bride's being held captive. And he goes to get her. Right? That's that image of him on, on the horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. Right? That's what happens. He says, who took my bride? And he goes to get her. He comes for his church. Right? And what is it that that looks like when he shows up with, with the word of God, the, the sword coming out of his mouth? What is it that that looks like? What does it look like when he comes for his bride? He's got the bloody robe. Right, the bloody robe, which we said last week is he cloaks himself in our blood and he comes to get us. It's the incarnation. The bride is revealed when he comes to get us. Look at how amazing this book is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is that, this, that let me just explain to you how awesome it is that you were sitting here when I at 33 just learned this. And my whole life, my whole life has been a facade. A whole life. What were you saying, Amy? Um <laughs> What a, is there an angle where the promise is perpetual adoration reflected back to where people are sitting around the throne? Yeah, we have the yeah absolutely. And that's why, that, that's the one downside of, so of the way that Smalley presents it, okay. is that it looks really linear. But really what's happening is that this is circles of the same story over and over again. And so he says at the very beginning, this is, this is what heaven is like. Let me tell you the story about when, when God came to save his bride. And if you missed it, let me tell you the story about when God came to save his bride. And just in case you were confused, this is what the world looked like and why God came to save his bride. So let me tell the story again about when God came to save his bride. When God came to undo the brokenness that his bride created in the midst of creation. When he undid everything that she accomplished from the very beginning. And so God completes his covenant and God completes his restoration. So listen to this. <clears throat> to go to mass is to go to heaven where God himself will wipe away every tear. Yet heaven is even more than that. Heaven is where we place ourselves under judgment, where we see ourselves in the clear morning light of eternal day, and where the just judge reads our works from the book of life. Our deeds go with us when we go to heaven. Our deeds go with us when we go to mass. To go to mass is to renew our covenant with God as at a marriage feast. For the Mass is the marriage supper of the Lamb. As in a marriage, we take vows, we pledge ourselves, we assume a new identity. We are changed forever. To go to Mass is to receive the fullness of grace, the very life of the Trinity. 
No power in heaven or on earth can give us more than we receive in the Mass, for we receive God into ourselves. We must never underestimate these realities. In the Mass, God has given us his very life. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a foretaste. We must go to Mass with the eyes and ears, mind and heart, open to the truth that is before us, the truth that rises like incense. God's life is the gift that we receive properly with gratitude. And he gives us grace as he has given us fire and light. Fire and light misused will burn us and blind us. In a similar way, grace received unworthily subjects us to judgment and to those same dire consequences. Yet in every Mass, God renews his covenant with each of us, setting before us life and death, blessing and curse. We must choose the blessing for our own. That's why he tells the story. So that we understand that it's not just us gathering together to pray against the world out there, but it's us gathering together to pray against the world that I bring with me into Mass. That I need to have that judgment poured out on those parts of my life so that they can be washed away. So that, so that I can be made clean. So that I can... It sounds awkward. So that I can wear a white dress. And yet, what do I do every Sunday? I wear a white dress, right? It's intentional. All of those things. Yeah. No. There might be some vicars who do that. Uh, not myself, but they're, you know. Yeah, but that's why, right? All of those things are, are meant to help us to see the world this way, to see what it is that's happening in our worship, that we are gathered together around the throne of the Lamb, inviting him to cast down the things in me that are still united to the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea, to cast down in me the things that are still broken and still worship the whore Babylon, right? Those are still parts of me, and those parts need to go away so that I can worship well, and yet... Every single time I come to Mass, every single time I come back, God is there ready to renew his covenant, to begin again that process of restoration. Every single time I come to Mass, he's there waiting for me with that power, that power to heal, that power to change. That is what the revelation of St. John is about. It's about you and I being changed by praying together, by living together, by working together. It's about you and I, the church, being changed. And it's about John telling us who we really are and what it is that Christ has done so that we can once again fall in love with him and show up again to allow that covenant to be renewed and that restoration to continue. So, questions? Reflections? I heard in the Bible, the Revelation, I don't know where I read it before, but I've heard when we all get to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to get up there, we're on the throne, we're all going to be saying, it's going to be silent for 30 minutes, and everybody's going to be shouting and everything. You believe that? There's, there's a, a, a passage, I think I might have erased it. No, I didn't. It's in, uh, in, in chapter 8, when, when uh, the, the, the Lamb is revealing the, the judgment. 
Uh, and he's the only one that can open the book of life, right? It's, it's referred to as the seventh scroll, but it, it, it means the book of life. Uh, and, and all of heaven is full of weeping and all of the angels are weeping because no one is able to open this book. No, one's, no, no one has power to open this book, but Jesus does. He opens the book and there's silence. And then all of creation sings because the lamb has opened the book of life, right? That's a, it, it's, it's about the incarnation is what it's about. Who can open the book of life? It's, it, it's that, that, that moment of stillness when creation holds its breath and the incarnation weeps for the first time, cradled in his mother's arms, right? There's silence. And then all of creation rejoices, right? Angel choirs are revealed from heaven to, you know, rednecks out in the countryside. You know, like, like there's, there's nothing, there, there's nothing left to, to, to hide heaven from, from earth because God has become man. God has taken all of my humanity into himself. Uh, and he's done that to rescue me. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.